This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. This Friday, we'll see U.S. Senate candidates Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes face each other on the debate floor this season and a chance to hear directly from the candidates rather than through ads or social media. After months of intense campaigning by both candidates, Incumbent Republican Ron Johnson will take the stage with Democratic challenger Mandela Barnes in Milwaukee at 7 p.m. tomorrow. The debate will be televised and broadcast on dozens of stations across the state, including WVMS-TV in Milwaukee, WPR, C-SPAN, National Cable Network, and Wisconsin Eye. WORT will replay the debate next Monday at noon. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources is asking you to report cases where spruce or pine trees may be infected. Now, that's out of concern that a fungus that they're calling HRD will spread. The fungus attacks the roots of coniferous trees, causing them to rot. And it appears as a white growth, often on tree stumps and on younger trees. Now the public is being asked to help track and curb the spread of the disease because HRD can spread through the root systems of coniferous trees. Entire groves can lose their branches or die off altogether. The DNR also warns that the fungus can be difficult to control once an outbreak occurs, and that's made more difficult by the fact that the fungicide used to treat the infected trees is mixed with water, meaning that the treatment must occur before freezing temperatures set in. Suspected or confirmed outbreaks of HRD can be reported and tracked on the Wisconsin DNR website. The National Labor Relations Board has ruled in favor of union workers at a Middleton-based video game company, reports the Cap Times. The video game giant behind major titles such as Call of Duty and Candy Crush declined to extend a company-wide wage increase for quality assurance testers at Raven Software, where workers were in the middle of union elections. Activision Blizzard claimed this move was in compliance with labor obligations, and the NLRB ruled that the unequal enforcement of this policy was meant to discourage quality assurance workers from unionizing. Other attempts at coercion were identified by the NLRB, including company executives attempting to meet with workers prior to union elections. Spokespeople for the major video game developer have stated that they intend to contest the ruling in court if need be. And after 30 years in service, F-16 jets have departed from the, Na- Na- the I'm sorry, the Air National Guard base on Madison's north side. Yesterday, the last F-16 fighter departed Truax Field with an accompanying ceremony, says the Wisconsin Air National Guard. The jets arrived at Truax Field 30 years ago when they replaced a previous jet called the A-10 Thunderbolt II. The removal is part of the controversial stationing of new F-35s next spring. Advocates opposed to the jets say the basing of F-35s at Truax Field has a litany of negative impacts, including PFAS pollution and extreme noise. And now on to today's top stories. 
voting took another blow today as a judge ruled that once your absentee ballot is cast, it cannot be recast, even if it gets damaged or your chosen candidate drops out of the race. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout has more. A Waukesha County judge ruled today that ballot spoiling is illegal. The lawsuit was brought by Brookfield resident Nancy Cormanic and the national conservative nonprofit Restoring Integrity and Trust in Elections, or Right. Ballot spoiling allows an absentee voter to recast their ballot if it becomes spoiled or contains one of many issues, such as being damaged, an error in filling in the ballot, a voter changing their mind after they have cast their ballot, or if a voter's chosen candidate drops out. But there's no voting twice. When a ballot is spoiled, it's invalidated by an election clerk, says Rachel Rodriguez, an election specialist at the Dane County Clerk's Office, when she spoke with WORT in July. Spoiling your ballot is the process that would allow you and allow clerks to disregard a ballot that you may have already returned and then receive a new ballot. When this happens, the original ballot is invalidated by the clerk and a new ballot is sent instead. Wisconsin voters are only allowed three ballots per election, so a ballot can only be spoiled twice. The lawsuit points to a Wisconsin statute that says that a replacement absentee ballot may be sent to a voter if the ballot is spoiled or damaged. The law does not say what is meant by spoiled, though the Election Commission has stated that a ballot can be spoiled if the voter changed their mind after returning the absentee ballot. The lawsuit filed late last month against the State Election Commission says that state law only allows someone to spoil their ballot before it is cast. Once the ballot is delivered to the clerk, the lawsuit says, their vote has officially been cast and cannot be changed, even if their chosen candidate is no longer in the race. The reason for this, the lawsuit says, is because someone could fraudulently change someone's vote without their permission. There has been no evidence of widespread voter fraud in Wisconsin. In fact, the only high-profile case of voter fraud in Wisconsin is that of a conservative activist who then bragged about committing voter fraud to the Racine County Sheriff and the State Election Commission. Ballot spoiling became prominent earlier this year when the top three Democratic candidates for U.S. Senate dropped out of the primary just before the primary election. The ruling is another win for conservatives looking to crack down on absentee voting in Wisconsin. Earlier this year, the state Supreme Court ruled that absentee ballot drop boxes were illegal. And last month, another Waukesha County judge ruled that ballot curing, or adding obvious information missing on absentee ballots, was illegal. The Elections Commission has not received the written ruling by airtime today and declined to comment until they could read the ruling in full. However, the Elections Commission is expected to hold a meeting tomorrow morning to discuss the ruling and the Commission's guidance on absentee ballot spoiling. The 2022 midterm election is on November 8th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. The U.S. economy is navigating forces such as inflation, but economists say there are bright spots, including positive trends in manufacturing, and Wisconsin Voices want more policies that harness recent gains. Mike Moen and the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Wisconsin has enjoyed a rebound in manufacturing jobs. Business owners and issue advocacy voices hope policies they deem effective are prioritized to keep momentum in place. The state's chief economist says manufacturing jobs could soon exceed pre-pandemic levels as the region attracts interest from the sector after some down periods. 
Sachin Chivarin of the Wisconsin Aluminum Foundry Company says over the past four years, they've added roughly 400 employees with some of that through acquisition. He feels recent policy decisions have helped as the industry balances new technology and adding more staff. We've just had to find our niche. And same as other companies have done across the state, is just adjusting to global pressures and finding where it makes sense to make things in the United States. Shivaram says incentives for innovation have helped and hopes Congress takes further action in this area. He feels the recent CHIPS Act will spur more activity, leading to more client demand. On the campaign trail, U.S. Senator Ron Johnson has been criticized for saying not all outsourced manufacturing jobs should return to America. He argues there should be a strategic approach because of labor shortages. But Megan Rowe of the nonpartisan group Opportunity Wisconsin says elected officials need to be held accountable if they support policies that focus on corporate profits as opposed to motivating companies to boost hiring as families deal with budget pressure from things like inflation. We talk to workers and families all across the Badger State who talk about the importance of you know, policies that are going to create good-paying union jobs that help, you know, put food on the table, help make ends meet. The 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act was called into question for incentivizing outsourcing. Shibram acknowledges those cuts helped his company's bottom line, but he argues he still wants policies that would spur other firms to embrace reshoring of jobs. He feels businesses like his see the importance of adding staff in the current environment. Other actions Shivram cites are Wisconsin's commitment to manufacturing tax credits, as well as the Federal Inflation Reduction Act. These things are really helping to build cornerstones of American industry. Meanwhile, economists say global supply chain issues and changes in consumer demand from the pandemic have also helped fuel recent manufacturing gains. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. It's now 6.15 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The race for governor in Wisconsin is shaping up to be the most expensive in the country. With the state legislature almost certain to remain in Republican control, the election then comes down to one important question. Will the Republican author bills passed by the legislature continue to be vetoed by Tony Evers, or will they become Wisconsin law under Tim Michaels? For today's Isthmus on Wart, producer Nate Wiggyhout spoke with Dylan Brogan, senior reporter at Isthmus, about his cover story in the latest print edition of the paper, outlining what's at stake in November. So, Dylan, your cover story this month, it's on the uh, governor's race here in Wisconsin, and you you sort of kick everything off uh, by going to a Tim Michaels rally up in Green Bay. Just to uh, just to start things off here, just tell me a little bit about your experience at the uh, Michaels rally. I've been I've seen him talk a couple of times now, and uh, for the most part, they've largely been the same. But but tell me a little bit about your experience. Well, that night it was a little bit of the DeSantis show, right? Because mm-hmm. he was in town promoting Michaels. But uh, I saw Michaels speak several times in the last couple of months, and he is very much on message. And that's uh, per- kind of just carrying the banner for the hot topics in the GOP. And that has a lot to do with uh, election integrity is what they call it. He hits school choice really hard. And uh, he also 
just basically tries to paint Tony Evers as a, a weak leader with his own radical agenda. And, and and now your story here, it, it, it's a bit of a compare and contrast between uh, Tony Evers and uh, Tim Michaels and sort of going going over some of the major policy issues for the two candidates. Now, you mentioned uh, Michaels calling him a uh, weak leader with a, a woke liberal agenda yeah, there. Yeah, that kind and, of stuff. Yeah, and, and I, I do want to get into that in a second here. But sort of uh, from while doing this story in your mind, what are, what are some of the biggest issues that these two candidates are? are going to face are are currently facing i guess i should say uh in the coming election here well uh that, with tim michaels we went over a few of them right uh, he is you know he still talks about the covid shutdowns and he still talks about um how we need more competition um in k-12 through education and how you know he's a businessman and he is a businessman um and evers is in a little bit of a different position because um, you know, Tim Michaels says, you know, paints Tony Evers as a radical, but whatever you think of Tony Evers, you know, he doesn't have republic, he doesn't have a legislature, and he's not going to have a legislature that lets him get a lot of legislative proposals done. The one issue that um, Evers is talking a lot about, I'd say, is abortion rights, and that's something that Tim Michaels has recently changed his mind about. He was. He said um, Wisconsin's 173-year-old abortion ban mirrors his position exactly, and that doesn't have, um, not exactly, doesn't have any exemptions in it for uh, rape or incest. And he's kind of backtracked on that a little. But, yeah, I think uh, anyone who's turned on television is well aware of the issues, crime and inflation. And um, I, I did try to center the article on you know, what is possible and what's actually at stake in this governor's race, because if Tony Evers is reelected, you know, it's not like where Wisconsin becomes Massachusetts. But mm. if uh, Tim Michaels is elected, then we are uh, a bright red state where there are few hurdles for the GOP to push through even more reforms. And remember, they had eight full years to do it under Governor Walker not that long ago. And and so sort of getting into that a little bit, uh, you did talk with uh, Governor Evers a little bit about his time as yeah. governor here and sort of, uh, let's say, his inability to enact too much policy due to the Republican-led legislature and uh, talking about how he, he feels like he's a bit of a goalie because of how many uh, bills that he's had to veto. Tell, tell me a little bit about that. How, how does Evers sort of see his relationship with the legislature uh, since he's been in office? It's very contentious, and uh, the way the Republicans talk about it, they blame it all on Evers and say he's unwilling to work with them. And I, I think it's pretty fair to say that the Republican lawmakers aren't exactly playing nice with Governor Evers either. They don't talk very much. Um, so this veto pen is a very important role for a Democratic governor who is governing, governing a purple state. Now, we don't we don't really it's hard to say what bills will come up again if Tim Michaels is elected, but there's about 120 of them from the last 2 years. A lot of them have to do with making it harder to vote, uh school choice, um uh, other measures. Uh the uh, the Republicans are promising another huge round of tax cuts. Um that's the kind of thing that Governor Evers has been able to uh, he's at least been able to moderate some of the more extremes of the Republican party and uh, at least in Wisconsin, I mean, Tim Michaels, uh, he, you know, he's a little different. You wouldn't think he is kind of like um, a Tim Rantham, who is that representative who ran for governor, too. But he is just as, you know, he's just as far right as any 
of the Wisconsin Republicans right now. I mean, he doesn't he won't say what he do about uh you know, he's he kind of says he'll decertify the 2020 presidential election, which you know, would require some sort of time machine to be able to accomplish that. And the Republican speaker, Robin Voss, says is not only just impossible, but it's unconstitutional. So Tim Michaels is, uh, you know, not willing to rule that out. He also, he doesn't quite say the 2020 election was stolen, um, but he, hey, he got to where he is right now in the Republican Party because of that endorsement from Donald Trump. So he does not counter that messaging either. So, uh, you know, in the cover story, I think it like it really goes through kind of point by point how even though this is a dead even race and it really is, I think it could go either way. Um, you know, Tim Michaels, at least if you look at the public polling, does seem to be out of step with the majority of Wisconsin voters. Some, you know, on some issues more than others. And so now you you did try and reach out to some of the top state Republicans yeah. here. Uh, they did not no, really they have get their back own to you. Conservative radio shows to go on, I guess. Yeah, yeah, but no, I they... really tried. I called Robin Voss's office like every day for two weeks. Uh, but you were able to get uh, a you know not the top Republican or anything like that. Yeah. But you did talk to uh, someone is sort of in the Republican establishment here in Wisconsin. What 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 sort of they have to say about all this? Yeah, Representative Tyler August. He's the guy. If you saw the special session, they just gathered. Out. He's the one who gaveled in, gaveled out in a few seconds. He was mm-hmm. the one who did that. Um, I th- was that yesterday or this week at least? Uh, that, that was this week. Yes. I, I think I was over in the Senate room. but Yeah, so yeah. he's the one who did it on the assembly side. And, you know, he paints uh, a very different picture of what's going on in Wisconsin. He thinks that uh, Wisconsinites have really appreciated all the tax cuts and uh, that Republicans have put through in the last eight years. And... Uh, he kind of, he wasn't going on some any crazy or he wasn't telling me any uh, a lot of extreme talking points, but that you know Tony Evers is getting in the way of what he sees as advancing the state, and he thinks it's all about Tony Evers playing politics. Now I think it's he is a Republican in the legislature. I think that's just kind of how they're going to frame it, right? Right mm-hmm. or wrong? Uh, could, I don't exactly know how Tony Evers could work closer with Republicans without adopting some of their policies, but. That's what people decide, you know, the, mm-hmm. the legislature, uh, that is the choice. What uh, Do we want a, a Democratic governor to be able to kind of moderate uh, a pretty right-wing uh, Republican legislature, or do we want to put Tim Michaels in, um, who, you know, uh, who will help, he's going to get a lot of cooperation from the from the legislature and from lawmakers, and he's going to be able to get a lot of things done, just like Scott Walker did when he had um, when he was in power with Republican majorities in the Assembly and Senate, and and so they they did sort of say as like yeah he's unwilling to work with the Republican yeah, legislature, but but you know but, the, yeah. but he you do mention in the article that uh, Ever says that he has signed more bills than he has vetoed, yeah. and there there has been a few things that have had some uh, bipartisan some support. Things, yes, yeah. uh, I mean Republicans don't like uh, that Tony Ever says oh, I gave you a tax cut because they're like we put we wrote that budget, you gave us this budget we didn't like. They had all this education funding, we didn't like that. We wrote our own, and now you're taking credit for our tax cut but he did sign the budget so i mean and yeah and and, you know broadband and i think there are a lot of bills that aren't controversial Mm -hmm. uh that used to be pretty much the norm um but what's unusual about the last two legislative sessions are just like i mean they basically haven't met since january Mm -hmm. 
They haven't even been trying to pass any laws, Republican or Democrat. They don't really have it. They've been very uncooperative with Democrats and even giving uh, Democrats uh, a hearing on their bills. Uh, and let's not forget in the state Senate, there are, are all these political appointees and cabinet secretaries that the state Senate has, it's four years later practically, has been, you know, dragging their feet on. And they do it for a deliberate reason, because if they don't confirm, which used to be yeah. a totally normal thing, right, in the first you know, six months, year of a governor's administration, all his cabinet secretaries, you, you know, got either were confirmed or rejected. Republicans aren't rejecting them. They're just not confirming them. So then if one of these cabinet secretaries does something they don't like, then they can just uh, they can essentially fire them. And uh, and what's even more interesting is we have these powerful state boards like the Natural Resources Board, where there's just a Walker appointee whose term expires and he's not leaving. And we have three of the Walker appointees on the Technical Colleges Board that just won't leave. And the Supreme Court in June said, well, if the Senate's not going to confirm uh, Evers appointees, well, then these old ones can stay on as long as they don't voluntarily resign or you know, uh, I don't know. There's a few ways to get out of there, but they basically get to stay on as long as they want past their terms, which seems like, uh, uh, which is absolutely taking away some of the governor's authority to influence state policy in a way that really has never been done before in the state either. Well, we're, we're sort of running up against the clock here, Dylan. Just any final thoughts on your story that you sort of want to uh, share with us that you want people to know? Yeah, check it out. Uh, I am really proud of it. It took a lot of work, and I think it's just a good reminder that, you know, these TV ads um, like to paint things in in extremes, and, uh, hey, after Election Day, that's not exactly how Mm -hmm. it's going to be because we don't have – it's really not a decision between a radical leftist or – Maybe it may be a decision between a moderate (laughs) Democrat (laughs) and, you know, what's at this point a pretty typical Republican. I've been uh, talking with Dylan Brogan, senior reporter over at Isthmus, about his cover story on the uh, governor's race here in Wisconsin. Uh, It's in the latest print issue of Isthmus. It's around Madison today. You can go pick it up or you can read it online over at Isthmus.com. Dylan, thanks for coming on and talking with me. Thanks. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Every other Thursday, we air an excerpt from Out of the Box podcast, which is focused on supporting current and formerly incarcerated people and their families. This week, host D. Starr spoke with Hamus Progress, that's Sabrina Madison, founder of the Progress Center for Black Women. She shares her story of growing up on the streets of Milwaukee and overcoming family trauma and how that helped shape who she is today. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D Star here with... Sabrina Madison, or most folks just call me Progress. Hey, Miss Progress. How you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm caffeinated. I'm awake, so I'm ready. Can you start off with uh, telling us a little bit about yourself? I'm Sabrina Madison. I am the founder and CEO of the Progress Center for Black Women. We are located on the top of the square in downtown Madison. I am a single mom or raised a child as a single mom. That kid would be about 28 in the fall. I've lived in Madison, I don't know, somewhere around 20 years now. 
much longer than I expected to be here. I am a poet. I will not come and do your family's weddings, though. <laughs> I am not that kind of poet. And I don't know. I'm just down to earth, uh, super laid back. Very, very much enjoy spending time with my nephew and traveling. That's awesome. Let's take us back, Sabrina. You say you're a single mom. Yep. Where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in the actual for real hood in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. <laughs> On 34th and Center. Um, and I always, I always say that I grew up in the for real hood because oftentimes, you know, here in Madison, at least, I think people have a misunderstanding of just how bad it can get. And so I grew up in a, um, a pretty rough neighborhood. But outside of it being a rough neighborhood, I do feel like I grew up surrounded by love, surrounded by uh, neighbors who very much looked out for me, who absolutely loved me, my brothers, my mom. Um, and this kid that I was carrying before we left. I grew up in Milwaukee, oldest of three siblings on my mom's side, and left Milwaukee somewhere when my son was around seven or eight years old just to kind of, you know, have better outcomes for him overall. So you're the oldest of three. So is it three girls, three boys? So it is four. My mom had four kids. Um, I'm the oldest uh, child, period, and I have three younger brothers. On my dad's side, I have a sister and a brother, and I'm the middle child on my dad's side. Oh, wow. Yeah. We talked off camera, and you said that uh, you have your own personal family struggles yeah. with some of the men in your family yep. being incarcerated. Can you yep. speak to that? Yeah, that is a, a, a lifelong story. But the shortened version is my mom's uh, two brothers, two of her three brothers, um, are in prison currently. They've been in prison for as long as I've known them. They were out. Both of them were out for a short amount of time, maybe three to five years each. And they committed other crimes after the fact and now are sitting on about 20 years, 20 to life each. I doubt that either of them will be free again in this free world with the rest of us. And then I have um, three brothers again on my mom's side. And currently I have a brother doing somewhere around seven to eight years of a 10-year sentence, I believe he has left. And my son's father uh, has been in prison for just as long as my son has been alive for most of my son's life. And I want to say he is about six years in on also a 10 to 12-year sentence. And then my own brothers, one came home after doing 13 years about three or four years ago, and then another one came home maybe two years after doing about six years. So at any given point, there have been moments in my life where all three of my brothers were in prison and my uncles were all locked up at the same time. There, uh, what is also interesting now is that I have a brother and an uncle who's in the Wisconsin Department of Corrections and their commute. this is the most that they've communicated with each other is writing each other letters in prison. And I just think about like, wow, what if that relationship had developed when they were both free, you know. That's crazy. But I know your story doesn't end there. Mm -hmm. That's just like kind of the beginning. Yep. So uh, what are some of the trials and tribulations that you had to overcome to get to where you are right now? Probably the biggest thing is just trying to get myself and my son to a place where we were safe. Because when you're growing up in a neighborhood, that's definitely rough. But then also you have family members who are committing crimes that could potentially put you in danger. You do want to really focus on your, like, your physical safety first and foremost. But then not really, uh, lots of black families especially are missing, um, you know, oftentimes black men are considered like protectors, right? So we're also missing these men in our families who were or we believed would protect us to some degree. 
And so growing up where, uh, you know, as the, the oldest of my mom's kids and probably the person who was most responsible, who was most consistent with like work and education, um, having to sort of like fend for myself and fend for my son and not having like my brothers out there to take care of me. Because when my brothers are home, they're like good guys, like, you know, raising their kids, being involved or whatever. But see, especially when they were all three locked up at once, it was just like, I'm out here. You know, it's just me and my kid out here, just just out here alone to a degree. And so overcoming um, not being able to depend on them was definitely a challenge. And so I learned very early on, especially after my dad died when I was about 10, that I'm going to just have to figure it out and make it happen. So what kind of work did you do before opening the center? Yeah, so I worked at Madison College for about uh, 10 to 12 years. I had maybe somewhere around four to five different jobs at the college. The last one was I was working with um, students who were student vets. For the most part, most of my jobs worked with students, various student groups around helping them navigate their two to, you know, one to two year program that they were working on. And that allowed me to really, really build myself in a community, really get to know people, understand how the city overall worked. But before coming to the college, I mean, I worked retail gas stations, you know, hustled some here and there. But yeah, any job that would help me put food on the table for the most part. Why did you get into this kind of work? Yeah. So somewhere around, I quit the college in 2016. So somewhere between 2012 and 2013, I started taking um, local speaking engagements. And at some, some point, those speaking engagements turned into some national speaking engagements. And what started happening is I'm traveling the country, giving talks in different cities, most of the topics surrounding um, women and just navigating the career space, everything from negotiating, starting salaries, um, to just advocating for yourself in the workplace, those sorts of topics. But I would come home to Madison and I, you know, for folks listening, coming from the airport in Atlanta, which is a very black space and feels just very welcoming. You know, you get off the escalator and you see Um, like local elected black officials welcoming you. Like it was just, a, it was so different. And then you would come into Dane County Airport, which was a total opposite. So what started happening is that I started to feel like I was in conflict with this space and this city and how this city thought about uh, the ability for black women to sort of like win, to lead, to be able to sort of like move to the next go and then to be in charge, to be the one to make the decisions. And so somewhere I got booked for a talk here and I, I think I was like heartbroken. Like I, I really felt like my heart was broken. So I quit my job because I was heartbroken. Like this community had just broke my heart, but I had a um, speaking engagement for an organization here. And I knew going in at that organization overserved women of color. So I was excited. I was like, man, I'm gonna come into this space. I just got back from Atlanta. It's going to be a ton of women of color here, especially black women. I'm gonna see myself represented. I'm going in talking about negotiating your salary, teaching people how I did it. And I walk in and none of those women look like me, except for like the woman who worked there. And I was like very disappointed. I was like heartbroken that this had happened. And so I asked those women who were all white women, how did you find out about this opportunity? Trout season is coming to a close here in Wisconsin. But don't worry, there are still opportunities to catch your personal best before the season ends. This week on Fishy Business, WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hansberg of the DNS Bait Shop in Madison look back at this year in trout fishing 
and check out what's biting around the Madison area. Alrighty, I am on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, how's the fishing been lately? What's been going on? Fishing's been great. These cooler temperatures we've had lately have uh, cooled the water down nicely, and the fish are responding by getting ready for winter. So uh, there's some happy anglers out there. And now it is uh, October 6th today, which means that the trout season is just about done. I believe we have uh, just uh, one more weekend of trout fishing ahead of us before it closes. So so just to uh, sort of wrap things up, how, how has the season been sort of overall for trout this year? And then sort of uh, what's what's been happening lately? Well, I would say overall the season's been pretty great for trout fishing around the Madison area. We had... Uh, Decent summer with not too many flood events, so the water remained pretty clear, and that had fish looking up. Um, so, you know, fly fishing was great. Of course, uh, folks that use live bait and spinners uh, do well most any time of the year, but at least from a fly fishing standpoint, the, the fishing was great all summer. And here in the fall, you know, we've, we've talked about the hopper bite here on the show before, and it's been um great and continues to be great that is until we get our first hard frost which sounds like it might be friday night this week it's on, I, I saw 33 degrees was going to be uh the low one of those nights and that'll that'll kill off the hoppers uh that's not to say that hoppers aren't still a good option for folks but um it's going to kind of the fish will kind of switch their their um gaze towards uh, blue-winged olives and caddis and some of the smaller flies that you use the, most of the rest of the year. So so might still be able to uh, trick the trout a little bit if you use some hoppers over the weekend. That's that's sort of good to hear, you know. I still, still have a little bit of a chance to uh, be using them over there. So overall, trout's been looking good all year, and that's, it's always happy to uh, hear that those are doing great. Uh, but now let's look at some of the uh, Madison waters a little bit more closely. Starting off, let's look at uh, Lake Mendota. What's been happening there? Well, um, Lake Mendota and all the lakes around the chain, actually, uh, the fish are, that were hanging out deep have started to move shallow. So you'll find a lot of your smallmouth and largemouth bass up shallow. Smallmouth bass generally around rocks. Largemouth bass generally around weeds. You'll have uh, a lot of your panfish are starting to move in shallow. Uh, walleyes are starting to be caught along the University shoreline and in the Tenney Park area. So uh, this cooler weather has uh, the shore anglers in a lot better mood uh, because with the summer heat, a lot of those fish move out deep and they're not as accessible to the shore anglers. So uh, it's a great time of year to be out there. And so largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, uh, you know, uh, uh, pretty pretty similar fish. But, you know, I, I do know some people who do prefer, you know, maybe one over the other or something like that. Uh, is, is there any sort of difference when if you're going specifically for, say, a largemouth bass over a smallmouth bass, either in uh, where you're looking to fish or uh, maybe what, what lures you're using to uh, go for them? Well, I would say generally for smallmouth, you want to look for rocky shorelines uh, or rocky structure um, and, you know, some cover, maybe some, uh, a downed tree or something can be good. Um, for largemouth bass, generally they like shallow water and weed flats. Uh, they like to kind of 
stalk around in the weeds, uh, ambush uh, bait fish, but also frogs are still a very effective uh, topwater frog lure, can be a very effective uh, largemouth bait this time of year. Uh, those fish are, like every other fish, uh, you know, looking for those, those larger meals, and uh, a frog definitely checks that box. All right, now let's go across the way over to Lake Monona. Let's been, well, what's been happening there? Well, uh, similarly, uh, a lot of the fish are moving up shallow. The, I, I guess the big news out there would be that the bluegills that had been suspended over the deep water all summer long have started to move in shallow into the weeds. So look for them mixed in with some decent-sized perch that I've been hearing about um, along weed lines. Uh, and then, of course, Lake Monona being a world-class uh, musky lake uh, is really that action has really been picking up lately. I've been hearing about some great catches coming out of Lake Monona and Lake Wabisa, which are both fantastic musky lakes uh, and popular baits for those uh, tend to be live suckers, but just fished under a, uh, under a, a large bobber. Uh, but uh, folks casting, you know, hard baits and, and stuff like that are also doing very well. And you mentioned some larger perch starting to come out of Monona, and I feel like I feel like for our, most of the summer, it's been a lot of smaller perch coming out of there. So, are, are are the larger ones starting to come out a little bit more now? Is or or is this maybe just sort of an anomaly? Well, it's it, I, you know I, I I can't exactly put my finger on it, but I'd say that just like all the other species, those fish are are getting ready for winter, and um, especially now uh, perch. Uh, they spawn in the spring, in the very early spring, just after the ice comes off. So they are actually producing eggs right now, you know, in, in, in their bodies. So they need a lot of food for that egg production. And so that's probably what's making those larger uh, breeder size perch a little more active as far as feeding goes. All right. And you mentioned it b- before, but Lake Wabisa, uh, I, what's been going on over there outside of uh, maybe the musky bite there? Anything happening? Well, the same thing as on Monona, really, there's um, a great perch and bluegill bite right now going on down there, So, and weed edges and shallow water have been good for both those fish. Uh, walleyes, as far as I know, have been a little more quiet, uh, but if you're looking for bass, we were talking about how much largemouth bass like shallow water and upper mud lake, which is between Lake Monona and Wabisa, it has large shallow weed flats and a lot of largemouth bass in there and a lot of great opportunities for some, some top water action up there. Now let's move over to some uh, moving water. Let's take a look at the Yahara. What's, what's been happening on the Yahara these days? Well, I've heard uh, up here on the north side, we've got um, some good action coming out of Cherokee Marsh and uh, Cherokee Lake, Cherokee Park area up here has been um, a, a, a tough as far as access all summer long. It's a lot of weeds up in that area. So folks with canoes and kayaks have been doing well all summer, but uh, folks from shore and folks in boats uh, have been trouble navigating those waters. But those weeds with the shorter days and cooler temps are starting to die back. So access is becoming better up there. Uh, elsewhere on the Yahara, I've heard about some fish um, down in the Stoughton area, in, right in the city of Stoughton, near the dam there. I've heard about some good white bass action down there, and then uh, some good panfish action, actually, in the Viking Park area, which is a, a dog park uh, just north of Stoughton, right on the Yahara River. Has been, I've been hearing about some panfish moving into that shallow water recently. 
And here's a little tip. Viking Park is actually one of my favorite places in the area to go fishing, although I haven't heard too much about panfish. So that's I, I might have to give that a look this weekend. Uh, well, well, Pat, we're sort of running up against the clock here. Just any final fishing advice for all the people out there? Well, you know, like we, we talked about earlier, trout season ends on October 15th here. So get out there and give that a shot while you can. And I, I guess, you know, fishing in general, it's not long before we're going to have ice and I personally love ice fishing, but, uh, you know, get out and enjoy the nice days while you can. Well, that makes one of us, uh, someone I guess has to love ice fishing. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> I've been talking with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop. Uh, remember that you can hear an updated fishing report anytime you want uh, just by calling one number, 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thanks for talking with me, and good luck out there. Thanks so much, Nate. You too. It's 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. jugs are ceramic vessels made by enslaved people in Edgefield, North Carolina during the early 1900s. The features are distinctive and expressive, with large eyes, broad noses, and full lips with teeth bared. Little is known about the jugs, and some believe they were used to carry water. Others believe they carried hidden messages and were used as a means to predict or cause the death of their enslavers. In this edition of Radio Chipstone, contributor Jennifer Fields introduces you to Michael Bain, a master potter who lives in Lincolnton, North Carolina. He says that working with clay is a way of connecting with potters who have gone before him. Thank you all for coming. I'm going to be demonstrating some uh, Edgeville style flex jugs. So we're going to start by making a jug. Well, I'm getting my ball of clay ready to be uh, turned into a jug, a vessel, and I'm thinking about the form I'm going to be making, which is a very small edge fill face vessel. Well, in making an edge fill face jug, it has particular eyes and particular teeth. It's a very primitive expression. I usually put the nose on first, then I'll put the porcelain eyes on the piece and then the teeth. Well, I think the magic part for me is when is uh, applying the face on there. That's when it gets to be, this is kind of the work part of it here on the wheel and then the really, I think, more fun part and I guess also really too, I think the most more artistic part is when I'm applying the face on the vessel. You know, there's attributes of the Edgefield face jug that I maintain, but they could have bulging eyes, just like you see on some of the old Edgefield face jugs, or the eyes could be sunken in a little bit. Face jugs are just like people. They're all different, they're all different. So, and that's the way I enjoy making them.
kind of keeps things uh, alive around my shop to make them make them intentionally be different. And I think they're always going to be different. I could never make two that look the same. I have customers at times wanting me. They've seen a face jug of mine, and they want me to make one just like it. And I always write them back and tell them that, well, I could make a sibling, but I couldn't make one exactly like that one. At this point right here, I think they really are. They're talking to me big time. After I get the nose and the lips and the eyes on there, they're really, they really are speaking to me. It's almost vibrating that, and it has like a its own little spirit. It's coming to life almost. It's talking to me about the history and the way the potters who made these pieces. It hopefully, and I think it really does. I feel so close to them, the potters who made these vessels when I'm doing this because I know that they had to be touching the clay just like I'm touching the clay and forming the eyelids very similar to the way I'm doing this and it's a very very spiritual thing to feel a part of that and a part of a part of, a part of them really I really feel that way I really feel that that uh, that they're working through me to perpetuate the story of their past and their legacy. I don't ever feel like I'm, just because I'm a, a, not an African-American, that I don't feel a part of them. I always try to, through my work and what I do, I try to help tell their story. Well, I believe, I believe it takes me back. It takes me back in, in history because this is the way these pieces were made and I, I feel as though I'm really cl closer to those early craftsmen, those early craftspeople who made these pieces. So in a way it's like a time travel. When they get to really talking pretty, pretty loudly to me then I always listen and hang on to those pieces. I do have my own collection, <laughs> collect some of my own work and collect uh, a lot of other potters' pieces also. It's always great going to a pottery show and looking around and there's uh, inevitably always some piece that'll speak to you and, and say, hey, I'm right here. I touch you in some way that you want to you want to give it a, a nice home, take it home with you. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Field. And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Aaron Ashley. Welcome aboard, Aaron. Re your reporter this evening was Mike Bowen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributors D. Starr and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Weedy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, don't miss an episode of the local news on WORT. You can listen on the WORT app 
or subscribe to the local news and hear the rest of the story on the Out of the Box podcast uh, on Spotify or wherever else you subscribe. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night, everybody.